Hello and welcome to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. This is episode 19 of the most influential weekly podcast to come out of the Saskatchewan business community. On each episode, Paul Martin, business commentator and the chair of Martin Charlton Communications, brings us the stories behind the headlines and explains why each story matters to you. On today's episode, it's time to delve into the story of Saskatchewan's powerful pink potash. Paul, I'm intrigued. Tell me, tell me this story. Uh, You briefly gave me the background and I'm like, no way. Let's delve into this. Firstly, before we start, how are you? Oh, just fine. Thank you. You know, it is interesting. And the powerful pink potash, I'm not sure if, um, who coined that phrase? Uh, it might have been me, I, but I suspect not. I think it was uh, a fellow named Howie Cummer. Howard was a, uh, a very in- interesting guy, grew up at La Flesh, Saskatchewan, near Gravelburg, the Assiniboia area, down in the, the south central part of the province. And uh, he went on to become a, 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 a member of Canada's uh, international trade team. He was uh, you know, posted in our embassies around the world as a trade officer. Then uh, near the end of career or mid-career, he, uh, he joined up with Canpotex. And Canpotex was just very much a fledgling organization at the time. Uh, but China, or he had uh, quite a bit of experience. He'd been posted to Hong Kong. Uh, so he had a lot of Asian experience and all of these the timing confluences came together. Chuck Childers was the uh, president of the Potash Corporation of Saskatchewan at the time, and it was just mint, uh, freshly uh, minted as a private company. It had been a crown corporation, and uh, so it was privatized. And he was, you know, handed the, uh, the task of growing the company. And at the time, we were in one of those periods in the cycle when Potash was in a glut worldwide. And so Chuck basically uh, shut the production down to uh, have world consumption kind of catch up to our inventory. We'd been building inventory. And the background on this is as a government corporation, and this was one of the challenges, uh, when it was a crown, uh, you know, the government was very reticent to lay off miners. They did, that's bad politics, right? Laying off workers. And as we know, the potash industries had just remarkable discipline as a private sector operation that when demand disappears, so does production. They cut back and they, they try and match those two. Well, when it was government owned, they actually went the other way. They just made a mess of it because they would create excess inventory around. And I remember talking with Chuck uh, about it. He said, it's really hard to get a price increase. And you go to your customer and say, I want to raise the price. And they look at you and say, you're sitting on a mountain of potash. I'm not raising the price. You're going to cut it because you need me more than I need you. So he implemented these policies where they would match production and consumption. And at the same time, he was looking around and he said to uh, the Canpotex team, which was, and for those who don't know, Canpotex looks after sales of potash across an ocean. So the industry companies look after their own sales in North America, but when they go abroad, they work collectively through Canpotex as a marketing agency. And so he said to uh, Howie, who was like the vice president of Canpotex at the time, find me a new market. And so they cast around the world and, and, you know, they always kept coming back to China because it was just opening up and it had been a, a pretty much a closed society behind the uh, bamboo curtain and they really weren't very engaged in international trade or anything like that. So they, uh, and, and Chuck said, you know, we're basically broke. I mean, we haven't got any money right now because there's no 
we're, we're cutting production. We don't have any revenue. I mean, so he said, the best I can do for you, Howie, is I can scrape up a million bucks. Go see if you can open up China with a million dollars. So and that's a pretty interesting challenge to throw to him. So they had a guy uh, that was working with Howie out of the Hong Kong office who was Chinese and knew China very well. So they basically, here's what they did. They took bags of potash and they pretty much walked into China. I mean, like they, you know, there was not very much for infrastructure there in those days. So they, they would get in through uh, Guangzhou and Shenzhen and work the southern part. And they basically worked their way farther north. And they would hand out on these, in those days, it was the communal farm system. It was, uh, you know, pretty old-fashioned way of doing things. But they, they, I was on one of these communal farms once in the early 80s, and there was like 50,000 people living in these things. I and mean, they, were, they were really kind of like counties that were a, a community. They had their own police force. I remember one even had a radio station. Uh, they were just little cities. And so what he did was uh, he went around and they handed out bags of potash. 50-pound bags of potash, and they would say to them, they would have town town meetings in the, in the spring at seeding time. They'd say, put potash in this rice paddy, but not in this one, and we'll come back at the end of the year, and we'll see how it panned out. And Howard, I remember him describing it to me this way. He said, you know, they've been farming for thousands of years. The land was so depleted. Uh, in terms of nutrients that uh, in potassium nutrients, you could put nitrogen in, but because uh, you could find it in manure and these kinds of things, but uh, potassium was the challenge. So they, he said, we had just absolutely astounding results. I mean, you would have one rice paddy or, or one, you know, depending what you were growing, but you could get like three, four feet difference in the plant size. And it was just like, it was astronomical. So everybody was, of course, when they would come back in the fall, when it was time to harvest, they would all be in awe. And then they would have contests with the local residents of the farm. They would make them say, take a guess how many pounds of rice are going to come off this field. And they'd put all the names and guesses in a jar. And then and they'd draw, you know, there'd be a winner who got the best guess and they would get a prize. And guess what the prize was? The only thing he had, a bag of potash. I mean, he didn't even have ball caps. He said, we didn't have anything. We were so poor. But they just started every season working their way farther and farther north and, and the word started to spread. Now, in Chinese culture, pink is a lucky color. And so pink comes out of the ground in Saskatchewan, um, you know, if it's out of a... a a mine that's done with a shaft, it comes out kind of pinkish too. So they decided to make use of that. They would call it, and that was the phrase, powerful pink potash was coined. And they would go around and they would say, put this stuff in. And you would, they would, they they said, but we couldn't just use potash. We had to convince them not to do, to do abandon the other ingredients in their uh, in their fertilization plan. So it was always to get nitrogen potassium and phosphate into the thing npk as they would say and he he said so we would we would call it conventional practice was uh, uh you know they put your hand basically you know at your waist this is how high your crop's going to grow and with recommended practice which is the one that added potash you put your hand over your head so there's a three foot difference in the size of the plant so this is the way they would go around the countryside marketing this thing was conventional practice the traditional way would give you three feet if you used recommended practice you would get six feet so 
it started to work. I remember the deputy premier of Saskatchewan for a period of time back then was a, a MLA from Swift Current. Her name was Pat Smith. She went over there and they would, you know, take her from uh, farm to farm to do these kind of like, I don't know, uh, you know, farm days or whatever you want to call it, almost like a fair where they would have a kind of production day kind of activity. And they were educational components. This was really designed to teach the farmers how to use fertilizer. And uh, so over a period of time, of course, it was, it worked. I mean, they started to see the results and the Chinese started to buy. And that's where it all began. So as it got rolling, there's a little side story going on here in Beijing at the time. And it started in Toronto. And there's a young guy who was going to university at the U of T. And, uh, you know, I don't know how well he was doing, but, uh, you know, may have been majoring in pizza and beer or something. But anyway, he, he, he had a facility for language. And he decided he saw a poster on the wall at the university, get a year scholarship to Beijing University uh, to study Mandarin. And so he was taking Mandarin as a uh, an elective. So he threw his name in, what the hell? And so he gets it. So off he goes. And uh, so here's this young, you know, Caucasian guy from Toronto, uh, just kind of having fun in Beijing. And he's at the university. And one night they had a student rally or a, kind of a, you know, a show night or whatever in the big auditorium. And he ended up on stage. And he uh, had this facility for language, as I said, but in particular, he had a real art for doing tongue twisters in Mandarin. And uh, so he started doing these things on stage, and it was like, you know, it went viral in the day long before social media, but the word was out, and he became... Uh, like a movie star, rock star kind of guy almost instantly. And he was recognized on the streets and was on television over there. And uh, I remember talking with him and, and uh, he said, you know, like I'd get stopped on the street literally by women who would propose marriage to their daughters and stuff like this. He said, it was just like really quite an incredible experience. And so the potash industry heard about him, and at the same time, the Chinese government was quite taken by this character who could do these tongue twisters and, and have some fun on stage. So they had partnered him with China's most revered and senior comedian as his mentor. So these two would often appear on television or whatever in China, and you know, always in Mandarin, of course. And so the potash industry heard about it because – the old wizened up Chinese comedian was this tall and the tall Canadian kid from Toronto was this tall. So they became, you know, conventional practice and recommended practice. And the industry put these two on the road and they would go on a roadshow doing these farms and doing performances at all these farms. Well, you imagine you've got uh, people living in these pretty much almost cloistered rural communities who have television but really limited exposure or contact with the big city life and then all of a sudden these guys you see on tv these sort of movie star characters show up at your farm well and talk to you about how you should use potash and powerful pink potash in your fertilization mix and uh, he, he ended up with a nickname his name was dashan which means big mountain and uh, he had uh, 
you know, became really quite famous. And ultimately, the Canadian government hired him and then uh, uh, to work in the Canadian embassy in Beijing. Somehow that fell apart. And then when Stephen Harper became prime minister, he rehired this guy because he had actually married and stayed and uh, married a, a, a Chinese woman and had stayed in Beijing. And I kind of lost track of him now. But, you know, I mean, this is a part of the evolutionary story of how potash was opened up into China that kind of got lost, I think. And, uh, we, you know, we look at it today in a, in a, as a global context of, you know, global scale, world scale, and uh, world-class production and stuff. But the beginnings of opening up what is a major market for potash was really quite humble. And it came at a time of need. The industry was struggling. And, you know, I'm kind of taken by the innovation that when handed this card by Chuck Childers, who was running Potash Corp., Howie Cummer was able to uh, respond to this and to actually mobilize the team and come up with the creativity that was required. And they ended up working with a with a small agency in Hong Kong that became, you know, pretty well uh, versed in what was going on with the potash thing. And and they had to do it, you know, I mean, challenge the additional challenge for someone like Cummer who'd grown up in La Flesh, more likely he was going to speak. English and French coming out of La Flesh Gravelberg than he was English Cantonese Mandarin, but they made it work. And, uh, and that's how the industry kind of cracked its way into, into China. And now today, of course, it's, uh, you know, one of our major markets. This reminds me that it's important not just to be present in a market. It's not just important to be able to deliver a product to a market, but it's important to really connect with people in a meaningful way, whether that's through using humor or other devices to really resonate with an audience and get the product in front of people. So from your perspective, as someone who has experienced it from the beginning, the middle and the end, where is the proportion and the importance that's placed on this story in terms of of really reading the audience, understanding their needs, and then working to really connect with them in their space? You know, it's a good point. And it reminds you that, uh, that, that there's sales and then there's marketing. And, uh, you know, I heard somebody once say that, uh, sales is picking the low-hanging fruit and marketing is watering the tree and uh, that relationships matter and there are if you if you understand your customer well you can capitalize on culture and uh, you know things that you don't even know are assets like pink being an important color choice and to actually work that in that requires you to go and learn a little bit about uh, you know your customer and 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 kind of work backwards uh, that way and, uh, and and maybe that was the sensitivity and really the depth of wisdom that Howie Cummer brought to the parade in this conversation because he had been uh, you know he was the quintessential Canadian who had who had gone abroad and understood the world and Canada's role in it and and respect for uh, other countries and other cultures and he was able to with that knowledge partner or match or marry what we had as an asset in potash and what and, and identify a need and then build a story around that so that he could actually sell it and then you know it probably would have been good enough just to carry the bags of potash and and to actually demonstrate which is what we would normally do here's the field results here's the trial results right but no he took it that step further and actually brought in the comedians and 
and cemented the relationship so that no other supplier could go in there and just simply beat you on price. I mean, uh, and, and in a commodity like potash or like grain that we sell so much around the world, you know, there's so, it's so limited what you can do in terms of beating out the customer. It's, it's mostly, it's one of two things. It's either price or it's logistics. Nobody says, I want to buy the luxury version of potash or the luxury version of canola. It is what it is. And there's a world price for it. And it's hard to jack up the price just to say mine's better quality than yours. Not really. I mean, we have a grading system and that's kind of it. So he was able to actually transcend that commodity a little bit in the early days and turn it into something that was much more of a, a, well, it was probably seen as an exotic product and, you know, it had not been part of the mix in Chinese agriculture for forever. And then they saw this magical results reinforced by a storyline that you would never forget if you were having the, if you were the decision maker on the Chinese farm. Paul, it's an amazing story, a fascinating insight, and really does bring it back home to us when we're trying to communicate on behalf of an organization and working out, well, what what makes us different? What makes us stand out? What could we do to really make people care, to help them understand why they should buy from us? Yeah, it's absolutely. And, and, you know, just one last element. I mean, I think too often uh, we overlook or we really don't truly understand how successful Saskatchewan has been on the global stage and sort of some of the pioneering work that we've done. And, and perhaps that's why, you know, I wanted to feature it in this, this, and we named this thing Saskatchewan matters because, you know, here's a prime example of us actually being groundbreakers on this thing and to be really innovative and to show you that you can open up a market. You can do things if you just, do a little homework, are sensitive to even things like culture and history. And if you don't know your own story, your own history, you're bound to repeat it over and over again, or you'll miss out on insights that you can use yourself. Uh, that's why we brought it here today. And I, I, you know, Mark Roswell was the guy's name, by the way. And I just think that, uh, and I don't know how much time he spent in Saskatchewan, not very much, but he really did play a role in helping us build things around here. And, uh, you know, is not a guy that we know about. Paul, thank you so much for this insight. And thank you for taking the time to listen to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. Do share the insights that power Saskatchewan with your friends and colleagues. Saskatchewan Matters is proud to be a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.